0: You're listening to the Nightlight Radio Network. This is Dr. Zohara Herodimus, co-host of 21st Century Radio. We are happy to present this rebroadcast of our show on Nightlight. Enjoy. Most of us, at least I think most of us, hope to live long lives filled with good deeds, children, grandchildren, and if we're lucky, even great-grandchildren. Some people watch a century pass. Others, only a few years, and still others, a few days or even hours, while some souls incarnating have bodies that die before birth. How do we make sense of our deep feelings for life and our world, while also living as though dying were a part of our personal and cultural lives? Buddhist and author Robert Sachs tells of his own journey into the frontiers of death, both in his practice and personal life. After losing a child and then having another child reborn seven years later, Sachs guides the reader into the Buddhist view of death and prepares wisely for that journey that each one of us, of all races, all nations, and all religions will share. His beautiful book, Rebirth into Pure Land, a true story of birth, death, and transformation, and how we can prepare for the most amazing journey of our lives, is our topic this hour. I thank you for joining us again, Robert.
1: Oh, it's nice to hear your voice, though.
0: Thank you. Even with the cold, I'm managing to stay conscious. <laughs> so... It might just
1: be that homeopathic uh, like cough medicine uh, gives you a homeopathic intoxication.
0: That must be it. It's the honey in it, I think. Sure. So look, this is a really serious topic, but no more. Um, it shouldn't be something we fear like our culture does. So first talk to us a little bit about the Buddhist perspective of death in general.
1: Well, I mean, um, probably what, what Tibetan doctors say, who have obviously been, been completely involved with their Buddhist practice as part of their medical training, what they learn, which we also know to be true, is that the first sign of death is birth that the minute you know there is an explosion between you know the meeting of the egg and the sperm and everything begins to divide at some point what happens is it reaches its maximum uh potential and then inevitably will begin to deteriorate and it's just a a simple fact of of how things arise and disappear and all things do and i think what it is is that therefore uh, in Buddhism, one of the most important lessons, and I think it's probably the most, um, what I would say is, um, not only is it, it it's, um, creates humility, but also what it, I think it does is creates a realistic way of living is to understand the truth of impermanence. If we don't have that sense of impermanence in our lives, uh, if we think we can just go on and on and on in some kind of a fantasy kind of way, then what we do is we really can create some very serious problems for ourselves.
0: And culturally, I, I, th- I think in a discussion I had with Peter Robbins about our war mentality, I think our society's inability to deal with death as a celebration and a journey of the soul has really gotten locked up in the war and that we can go and kill with, with very little sense of what happens to that other culture we harm.
1: Well, I, I think also, I mean, this this brings up the our, our very current situation of what happened two weeks ago in Connecticut, and uh, you know what you have is you know an, an outcry initially, which I think is completely appropriate. You know that that I, and what I was actually talking about to people on on in social media was the idea that what we need to do is we need to attend to the grieving mothers and fathers and people in that community Mm -hmm. before we start any kind of dialogue as to why or how it came about. But once we have done that, once we have really sort of like tended to the living, we need to start asking some serious questions and we can't necessarily disconnect ourselves from, uh, the reality, for example, that we have drone strikes in various parts of the world where, there are wedding parties and families that exactly. get uh, annihilated we exactly. can we can't we can't, we can't in, on one level say how tragic how human and then at the same time dehumanize all those others going through similar experiences
0: yeah you you've come to exactly the same observation that I came to from this horrible tragedy is that we're seeing what we do around the world in the face of children. And in this case, on psychiatric drugs, which we know causes mania. And I've discussed this on and off for years with Dr. Peter Bregan. But because you have the personal experience of the loss of your treasured daughter, you are in a particular place that many parents hope never to be in, which is to understand what that loss is like.
1: And and actually, so what happened was about uh, three weeks ago, uh, before Christmas. Uh, uh, usually, hospices, and I'm I'm still a hospice social worker, and I, so I get called to do various things for various hospices. There's an organization called Compassionate Friends, and Compassionate Friends is actually a group that really uh, is about parents getting together and somehow memorializing and celebrating the life of children that have passed. And so they asked me to do a presentation, and, and it was very interesting when you, started, uh, when you started talking about the book, about the, the notion that we have that we will be born, that we will grow up, that we will you know, mm-hmm. get jobs, we will get married, we will have children, on and on and on and on and on. And, and really what we're looking at is uh, a reality where, where many people in the world don't even get even close to that. Um, There are children, people, uh, children die all the time in all sorts of circumstances, whether it is sudden infant death like our daughter was... Whether it is like an undetected disease that a doctor didn't see, whether it was a, um, a miscalculation in terms of a medical procedure, whether it was an you know uh, improvised explosive device in Iraq or Afghanistan, uh, or or, you know,
0: or 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 no access to potable water,
1: no 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 access to affordable water, uh, the the in, you know the the arising of AIDS for kids that are like nine and ten years old, on and on and on. I mean, no parent wants to see their child die, but the reality is that death happens when it does, and it happens at any time. We just have this kind of projected wish that we could all live to a nice, ripe old age, and the fact is that that's not. there's no uniform law about that.
0: Exactly. So when you began your odyssey into Buddhism this lifetime, talk to us a little bit about for what reason you were drawn to the tradition and why it has become so integral in your life and your shared community and that of your wife and family.
1: Well, I I think initially for me, uh, though, was was that um, I... I've always felt some kind of connection to spirit. I, I'm actually, at this point, putting together a project which I, uh, in some ways, want to be called. Uh, the subtitle will be "Awakening in the Land of the Free," mm-hmm. and realizing that most most of us are Heinz 57 babies. Uh, we have a multiplicity of, of traditions and cultures that interface in our in our in our uh, upbringing of our birth and our upbringing, et cetera, et cetera. For me, I was. In some ways, thinking that I would become a rabbi because Mm -hmm. I come from a long lineage of rabbis from my father's side of the family. But I think what happened for me was that uh, at a very early age, I went through several experiences. First, being Jewish in a non-Jewish community and being attacked and beaten up or attacked and and threatened. My family's uh, animal hospital was firebombed. My father was a veterinarian. Mm. And then we moved into a, a Jewish enclave. My parents wanted to escape from being a minority, and I began to watch the discrimination against blacks and Gentiles in Jewish communities.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And what I came to at that point was that, that it had nothing to do with um, religion. It had more to do with prejudice in people's states of mind. Right. And therefore, uh, when you look at the idea of Buddhism, which is in fact much more of a mind science, than it is a religion and you look at the fact that the historical buddha was faced with the reality not that dissimilar to the crusade period of the crusades where people were killing each other in the name of god and he at one point he said listen if we disagree about god and god's supposed to be an objective truth then obviously it has to do with how we form our opinion about god so therefore let's examine our opinions so to me Uh, Having an appreciation and interest in things like psychology and sociology made it so that going into that quest or that uh, inquiry in the Buddhist tradition, which is what it it is all about, uh, it was logical. I, I also give myself an excuse that I have Mongolian heritage which uh, means that uh, you know when we start talking about genetic predispositions, I think I was also genetically predisposed to becoming Buddhist.
0: Well, it's so interesting because so many men and women of Jewish background have become Buddhist, and everybody that I know who has chosen that path say, because it's not about belief, it's about practice. It's about true life experience. It's not about somebody's dictum of what you can or can't do or believe. And so I think it's a profound opportunity. And the fact that Buddhism has become so prevalent in the West, I think, is so healthy for the Western culture.
1: Well, not only that, I mean, probably one of the more wonderful events I had to deal with uh, many, many years ago was uh, I was... um, I was working at a holistic health center in Lexington, Kentucky. and at one point, uh, some of the brothers from Gethsemane, which was the monastery of Thomas Merton, uh, came for treatment. and we got to be close friends, and the brothers said, "Would you come to the uh, the monastery uh, to help us, you know just set up our our um, our kitchen so that we could be more healthy?" And so I went to you know, Thomas Merton's monastery. Obviously, this is many years after Thomas Merton had passed. And um, I think I probably spent as much time talking about yoga and meditation as I did talking about food because mm-hmm. what I found out was that many of these brothers had gone to Zen retreats, had gone to yoga retreats, were doing yoga and meditation in their cells, and their attitude was, whatever brings us closer to God is fine by us.
0: Right. Well, and I think that, you know, that's why I love the fact that the Mayan tradition speaks of this time period as the sixth sun, the flowering and cross-fertilization of all traditions. And I think for those of us who have been on the path of spiritual seeking, and that's pretty much that whole 50s, 40s, 50s generation, um, that it's a really important path that every human goes on at some point in some lifetime. And if not this lifetime, maybe next lifetime. But the point you make in your book, and I think it's, such a beautiful book and such an important addition, Rebirth into Pure Land, is that you point out that helping the person who is dying is a really specific thing, and it's extremely charted territory in Buddhism.
1: Yes, it is. And and I think what it it is is that by virtue of the fact that Buddhism focuses on uh, what is going on in the mind through various experiences, it lends itself, and it's the healing systems that have come from it lends itself to the ability to be able to help a person going through the dying process understand and normalize that process. Right. W- and also what that does is it is of tremendous help to the family witnessing that situation. I mean, I spend a lot of – I mean, oftentimes when I get the opportunity, and fortunately I would say that it, it's it's happening – Possibly a little bit more than it used to is is being able to um, sort of like explain uh, to a family the various states of mind I'm actually I'm more I think what I would say is I'm more confident in doing it with people than I was when I initially started hospice work. so that being able to map out to people what they will experience or what loved ones will observe in the person that is dying. Um, actually creates a tremendous amount of sanity and comfort.
0: Well, and, and as the Buddhists say, there is such a thing as dying well, and where our culture, unfortunately, hides generally the dead away, or the people who are dying, any one of us, in a hospital yes. or somewhere separate from the family, and with people they don't even know who are certainly loving, kind people, but it but it doesn't necessarily make for a good death.
1: Well, we have a very dysfunctional relationship with impermanence.
0: That's the right way to put it. That's beautifully put. Well, look, speaking of impermanence, our time is, so we're going to take a break. And when we come back, I'd like to do as you do in your book, Rebirth into Pure Land. Talk about some of the the way the Buddhists describe the stages that a human goes through in the process of dying. because. All of us are going to be there, and the more we can share with each other what this journey is like so that the conscious human can continue in a good way after the body ceases is really the objective in all these great practices. We'll be right back. Our guest, Robert Sachs, his book, Rebirth Into Pure Land. Hello, this is Heather Reed, co-author of Sustainable Wellness, an Integrative Approach to Transform Your Mind, Body, and Spirit. You can find out more about our book and our program, www.sustainablewellnessonline.com. You're listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Sohara Hieronymus, one of the best and experienced interviewers I've ever listened to. You're in great hands. Enjoy. So, Robert, the Buddhists really say that there is such a thing as having good death, just like we know there's such a thing as having a good birth. And we have a society that somewhat knows how to handle birth except for the fact they make women lie on their backs on tables. But beyond that ridiculousness, um, we don't really pay much attention to that dying is really a very important of our important stage of our life. So talk to us a bit about how dying well is really being awake while we leave our bodies.
1: There is a very distinct way in which um, the natural elements of our body uh, break down. And in Tibetan medicine, uh, it looks at it from the standpoint of the organ systems and the, uh, the Buddhist psychology looks at it from the standpoint of the emotions and the spiritual experiences a person is having. And over time, the more you are around the dying, the more you see these various stages, and this is in keeping with what in the Orient is known as the Law of Five Elements or Five Transformations, that there are energetic states that collapse into each other, and uh, it starts with the element of Earth, which usually what you'll see with somebody who is dying is that... um, for one thing, they begin to mottle from the feet up, like there's almost like circulation begins to diminish in the lower extremities of their body, and their lower body becomes heavier and colder. Um, their appetite begins to change, uh, which, uh, which means that whatever they're taking in as food, it doesn't taste the same, or they, they want something, and then by the time they get it, it doesn't taste right. Um, and the sense of embodiment begins to diminish. To the point where uh, there is uh, a presence of of what is sort of what you could say is the non-material and the material begin to bump into each other more and more, as someone is more presently or more actively dying, and the earth element is manifesting. It'll oftentimes be that this is when people see loved ones or people come into the room that nobody else sees. As this earth element diminishes more and more, it. Caves into what's called the water element, and the water element has to do with the bladder and the kidneys. So there is a problem with our, our irrigation system of our body. Uh, we begin to have changes in our autonomic nervous system. Day becomes night, night becomes day. Um, we feel thirsty, then we feel, uh, and then, and sometimes just, just, uh, just needing, needing more water, but water not satisfying at the same time what happens is the mind begins to go into a state of cautiousness and withdrawal and there is a what's going on is that there is connections that are being made at more of a level of like energetics so you might be talking to someone that is in this water stage of dying And what happens is you think you're having a linear conversation and suddenly they're talking about something else and you go, well, they obviously have lost the point or they're not listening to me or they're going nuts or maybe it's their medication or whatever it is. But in fact, what's going on is the person is making energetic connections between things in ways that we may not understand, but begins to transcend language. As the water element dissolves into the fire element, what happens is that people's uh, circulation begins to deteriorate more and more. Uh, they begin to feel hot and cold going back and forth. You put blankets on them and they're still cold. Then they, want it, uh, then they become extremely hot and they throw everything off. So is the change in temperature, but also the experience of light. Um, and sometimes that light is, is welcome, and sometimes it is not welcome, depending on uh, the stages uh, of, of awareness and what the person has gone through in terms of working with their own mind and emotions. So there's an experience of a, a greater uh, appearance of light. There can be great joy, and at the same time, there can be great anxiety that appears but oftentimes uh, you might find people staring off in a distance and suddenly as if they are seeing things uh, in, in a way which is, is, is radiant and different, uh, a sense of awe of it all. And then as the fire element begins to diminish and moves into the air element or the metal element, for some people that have studied Chinese medicine, what happens is people's breathing becomes labored. They go into the various stages of of, of breathing that are very familiar to people in hospice in terms of uh, chain-stoke breathing and a way of breathing that oftentimes creates a tremendous amount of anxiety, and this is where oftentimes... Um, hospitals or even hospices rush in and try to medicate or try... uh, It it seems so anxious. It seems so um, uh, intense. And so the idea is to medicate when, in fact, what's happening is there's lots of breakdowns and things that are happening inside that really uh, there's... uh, Oftentimes what's interesting is people that have begun to experience that don't want their medication. They want to maintain their clarity uh... but we we tend to interfere a little bit too much with this but what's going on is that there is like a life review that is going on uh... where uh... life flashes before one's eyes and uh, it's, it's like the way in which, rather than seeing his history as, let's say, a linear line uh, in the in the horizontal, it becomes a linear line in the vertical. And there's an understanding of the alignment of things in one's life that brings you to this point. Which is why, in fact, in my book Perfect Endings, I talk about the idea that every one of our birth our deaths, is actually perfect because it is the summation of absolutely everything we have done. I mean, in many respects, my, the way in which I look at death is death is the absolute perfection of what our life has been about because it takes every bit of strength, whether it's physical strength, emotional strength, and spiritual strength to work with that time. So if we haven't done our homework, if we haven't really focused on things, we see it at that time, but it is the perfect perfect manifestation Of what we have done in terms of preparation, so we go into that state, and then at some point, what does happen is as the breath diminishes and then it finally goes, we then have the collapsing of the air element, which then goes into the ether element, which has to do with us dissolving with space and understanding that mind and space are the same. So this. That's wait, but don't
0: go too fast because that's a really vital appreciation yes. that mind and space. I mean, in all the work of quantum physics and all the study of consciousness, it's come to the same conclusion, which yes. is that mind and space is what makes everything interconnected, whether That's it's correct. the tree or the dog or the human or the star.
1: That's right. And what it is really is, and this is when you actually are getting into, is that that uh, that one taste or that non-referential point that Buddhism talks about, which um, really is uh, where, in fact, if if we are well-trained and aware of what's going to happen, we begin to understand that relationship between mind and space, and we attain enlightenment. That is the enlightenment moment that happens at about 30 minutes after we die. We actually get an opportunity at that point when we go into a clear light state, which happens as, uh, as various... Mm, mental and emotional uh, state, uh, states of anger and, and, and passion begin to dissolve, and we're letting go of more and more layers of our body. We suddenly have that moment where we understand that clear light moment where space is information, and we suddenly have it where space and our, our awareness are one.
0: Well, you it, you mentioned anger, and it's so interesting how all the sacred societies speak to our getting a handle on our anger while we're alive. Because yes. if we don't handle these things while we're living, it's during the dying process and in, the, in between lives that we then have to still work on these things. So talk to us a little bit. I want to come back to the actual description you've given us that after we die for about 30 minutes, yes. um, we're in the samadhi. And it's oftentimes, though, when everybody around the deceased is crying and yes. wrenching and, you know, hugging yeah. and maybe even moving the body.
1: Yes, I actually encourage people to uh to, to um, if they're really really in a state of distracted uh uh grief to actually step away from the body during that time to actually go for a walk uh get a support from someone who can help you work with whatever's going on because in some ways what we're wanting to do is create the optimal opportunity for the person that has just died rather than it becoming uh, a, 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 the situation of anguish that it oftentimes becomes. So I've really tried to encourage people to be aware of that uh, during that time.
0: Well, and, and, and you also described that the Buddhists then say that After we die, about 30 minutes later, we're in the samadhi. And this is when the soul is preparing to leave the body. And you say that for the first 15 minutes, you see a light like the moon.
1: Yes. What's going on basically is, I mean, if you want to look at it in terms of blood and and oxygen uh, and nervous system, what's going on is our nervous system is shutting down and our, uh, our circulation is beginning to stop. So how it manifests in terms of our experience is it first starts with, like, our, our brain death. Uh, in in Buddhism, the idea is that uh, oftentimes when there's a, there are light meditations, and the idea is that the white light is what's in the head. And the idea, therefore, is that in that white light, oftentimes the nervous system is so much about self-preservation and protecting the body, being able to move it when you want to, to uh, in terms of dealing with, you know, threats. So what happens is that intense energy that's in the head has a lot to do with anger and self-protection. So what happens is that that light begins to dissolve and that white light begins to move down towards the heart. And that takes about 15 minutes. And then you have, from the area of the Tan or the second chakra, you know, a great pooling of of, uh, of our circulation. And what happens is that in our sexual energy, that energy is associated with attachments and passions, and so the kind of, of of zest for life, so to speak, is going out, and therefore there's a diminishment of that orange light from the lower part of our body, which then begins to move up towards the heart. And when this white light and this orange light or red light dissolve into the heart, there is a clear light experience because finally what's happening is all of those very, very strong emotions and protective mechanisms that we have are no longer functioning. So suddenly what ends up happening is mind gets to recognize itself as itself without the attachments to and the fixation on physical manifestation. And it's a question of whether or not we have the presence and the practice to recognize it at that time. Most of us don't.
0: Well, you know, it's so interesting because George Harrison, in preparation for his death, had done a great deal of meditative work in order to be awake while he died. Yes. And and so it's, it's – there's a lot of um, interest, let me put it that way, in the Western culture of yes. seekers – to use the Tibetan tradition in a way that will be helpful for evolution. So if after this 30 minutes, so let's say most Westerners haven't done any practice, and if they've grown up in some traditions, they're absolutely terrified of what will happen after yeah. they die. How does fear of death um, get in the way of this samadhi?
1: Um it well it does i mean basically what happens is if your mind is not prepared in, in many ways i mean i think what's beautiful though is the thing that i've i've seen is let's say people that have had uh, no faith or or very rigid faith
0: mm-hmm.
1: and i've been with people the last few days before they died and seen a sense of amazement in their eyes yeah. like there's like a radiance and there's a beauty and i've 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 ventured at times when i've seen that uh for people that are either Um, You know, never believed in God, suddenly have uh, a sense of connection to something greater than themselves. Mm -hmm. And some people that have had a very, very anthropomorphic God who suddenly they begin to realize, and I just say to them, it's much bigger than you thought, isn't it?
0: Exactly. Well, as I always say, you know, if you haven't had a peak experience while you're alive, you're going to get it when you die. You are going to get
1: it. (laughs) You are going to get it.
0: I mean, we really do have revelation at death. In fact, that's what the whole tabernacle tradition that I've studied from a Kabbalistic vantage point. Sure was all about when you finally get into the holy of holies and you've divine revelation we experience that when we throw off our bodies so and we
1: will do that and then it just becomes a question of uh and and this again is that, that that so much of what goes on with the mind has to do with good or negative habits that we've created therefore it can be that in the face of that uh most people what happens in that situation where we are presented with the uh the clear light experience most of us just pass out
0: We mm-hmm. can't handle
1: it we can't handle the truth. so what happens is that about three days later um what happens is we sort of like pull out of that fainting experience and begin our our consciousness begins to reemerge again, which is interesting that we have the idea of a wake that happens for three days, you know because simply because what happens is according to Buddhist tradition at that point, the mind comes out of that swoon, and you're suddenly beginning to be presented with the intermediate state between the life that you've led, the life that you are just you have just left, and what is going to happen next. And so at that point, you still have to begin to work with the emotions. The emotions are still there.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, you know, so when you look then at the Buddhist practices of various kinds of meditations and various kinds of actions in the world that are based in sort of connecting us to the all, compassion and, you know, codependent arising, all these wonderful ways of expressing that we're one, yeah. it makes it a lot easier then, obviously, when we leave our bodies.
1: If, yeah. I mean, basically, the idea is, is that practice makes perfect. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's like, and this is the point that I make in the book, is that, um, you know, this is something that we're taught from a very very early, very early age. If you want to master anything in your life, you practice it. And so, to me, that is a necess- that, that is not a, um, uh, um, uh, a macabre thing to consider, because simply because of the fact that death is, like I said, in terms of it can happen at any time. Exactly. And the notion of impermanence, to me, what it is 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 literally mastering those elements, understanding the way in which they develop inside us. As we do that in our day to day experience then when it comes to these times, it will be a much more recognizable landscape.
0: Yeah, especially when I've, I've read various opinions about when millions or thousands of people die at the same time, that it's a very difficult um, challenge for those on the other side who are acting as guides. And so the more of humanity who is prepared, you know, we, you can go to childbirth classes, but I've never heard of going to a dying class. Yeah. And and yet in it. in your book Rebirth into a Pure into Pure Land you give us these wonderful actual exercises we can each do and when we come back I'd like to talk about that.
1: I'm David Krafchow. I'm the author of the recent book, 2012 in the Kabbalah. My website is jewishbohemian.com. And I feel very pleased to have been a guest with Dr. Zahara Hieronymus on 21st Century Radio. Thank you so much.
0: Welcome back to 21st Century Radio. If you've just joined us, Robert Sachs is our guest, Rebirth into Pure Land. You won't be disappointed, and I encourage all of you to get this book. You can read it. You can practice it. You can share it with others, and I think it will be just a magnificent addition to your life experience. All right, so I want to come to some some of the exercises, Robert, that you give people as a way to envision death in a way that's yeah. very positive and, and in a way to prepare us to let go of our anger now, to let go of our clinging now, because as you point out, in dying, we get a real-life review. So talk to us about preparation and practice.
1: Well, I mean, uh, I mean, you were talking about birth classes, and I've actually started literally taking people through this process. And, uh, for, the, uh, for the winter solstice, we actually did that uh, to, to take people through uh, literally the elements in the order in which they dissolve, and that's what I have in the book. Where you can actually read it to someone, uh, if you like, uh, or take a group of people through it, if you if you're so inclined. Um, but really, the uh, the idea is that uh, of course, dying has its own time, but the elements and the order in which they dissolve are are recognizable. You know when you're in a certain state, you can see these things. So what I've done is I've literally broken it up into a sequence of, of the five elements and the uh, having people just being able to, to relax and observe certain states of mind, which, by the way... Um, Whenever we are processing new information, we literally process information uh, that is new to us going through these elements so that as I describe these, they're not going to be unfamiliar to any person uh, that is going through any kind of change that they go through. It'll just be like, oh my goodness, I didn't realize that, yeah, that's, that's essentially what I go through every time I go through a crisis or make a change in my life it becomes more and more apparent. So what I've done is I, I, I go through each one of these stages talking about the, 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 uh, the emotional states that are, are part and parcel of the process. And also one of the uh, chapters that I have really has to do with, uh, as part of that, um, realizing that we, uh, we have our bodies, but we are not our bodies and it's a process. Uh, I, I, I talk to uh, talk about that you who you are uh, behind it all. And so, to me, what I try to do is I try to help people go through that state, let go into the next element, let go into the next element, let go into the next element, until eventually you begin to understand who you are behind all of the ways in which we define and protect ourselves and the boxes we put ourselves in. Because so much of of what we're going to be dealing with, and this is something that I see again and again uh, in both home care as well as hospice work, is that um, as we lose our ability to walk or we lose our ability to see, because of the fact that we have defined ourselves as, let's say, we're a, a, a breadwinner and then we give up our jobs and then we wonder what we should do and then we decide we're going to play golf. But then our legs give way, so I can't walk anymore. Who am I without my ability to walk? Uh, who am I with my, my with, without my ability to, to sit up and have conversation? Who am I if I can no longer see and all of these are our processes that we all will go through in our dying and it's a question of rather than identifying with and getting caught in the, the negative emotion of what we have lost is trying to see behind that who are we behind all of these um, experiences all these things that we cling on to and so these these this all of these exercises are designed to make us aware and bring us to a state of understanding that in some ways frees us from our fixation on each one of these qualities that we identify ourselves as being. We have these qualities, but we are not those qualities.
0: Right. So when you practice these visualizations, if you will, or considerations about your life, it's it's a very good exercise. I mean, some people might say, well, I don't want to do that. I'll just wait till I die. But I think yeah. the whole point of of what you're saying is in the same way a woman can prepare for childbirth to make it easier, um, we can also prepare very deliberately through meditation and certain kinds of practices for the day we will celebrate by Returning to spirit, and so mm-hmm. I, I, I really like the fact that you, you first in your book you talk very, um, fatherly of of the real life experience of the death of your wife and your beloved child, and and I'd like for you to talk for a minute about Shamara Philippa because, you spoke of her as though she were a great spiritual teacher and not a forty-eight day old infant.
1: Yes. Well, I mean, I, I think that um at what point at, at what point um i I can if you understand from the standpoint of of spirit that spirit manifests in small things and large things in in the voices that we hear and the thoughts that we have, then we can't discount anything or anyone um I think that oftentimes uh we tend to. Uh, either diminish or elevate uh, people around us to various states only because of the fact that we don't recognize uh, the presence of spirit in everything. And therefore, uh, it's, it's, it's something that I think in the spiritual process uh, we have to recognize is that we are all equal under the eyes of God. Um, and therefore, the fact that she was 48 days old is completely irrelevant in terms of, of um, at least my my experience my experience of her, and um, that's that's just how I think. I mean, I, I I marvel at looking at parents that treat their kids like little tykes. Mm-hmm. and don't look at them as, as, uh, as spiritual beings having a human experience, being in a little body that has very little, let's say, practical knowledge of the world, but they are still a spirit incarnate and a, and a spirit that is completely uh, present, but they have very little experience in this little tiny body. And, and I think what we do is if we diminish that, and we begin to actually uh, diminish the possibilities that are around us all the time. So for me, um, I, I think that possibly Shamara woke me up to that. I mean, I've never really diminished our children, but it certainly became clear to me in the presence of our daughter and what we experienced was that this was, um, I mean, we could, we could weep about a baby, and we actually did. I mean, we, as parents, you weep. I mean, the grieving is the process of integration. Um, and so we grieved, but at the same time, uh, there is there is a recognition of what it is that you're waking up to in the process of integrating that into your life.
0: No question so for about it. I,
1: I never I never thought of her as just you know just you know we just only. I mean I remember at one point uh, a friend of mine said, well you know according to a theory about grieving. Is that uh, you should have so much time for every year you've known someone, and to me that's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. you know that really is it's just it's just somebody's theory about these things and and to me, what it is is that we are constantly integrating our experiences
0: well and also because exactly and it could take several lifetimes to get over the loss of a particular soul in your presence. Because yeah, you may not absolutely. have seen them for a thousand years, and then you see them for 10 minutes. And it's and, and, and all the world converges in that moment of harmony. So I think that when, when, at least from my own life experience, I can't understand how any human cannot believe in reincarnation. I mean, to me, I mean, it's just one little simple piece <laughs> of, of cosmology that makes so much sense to me. And without it, it just doesn't make any sense to me.
1: Well, I mean, I mean, if you just—I I was thinking about that earlier today. I mean, if if you base it on on Einstein's principle of energy never uh, never is right. destroyed, it just changes form. Right. If you just go at it in terms of pure science, we know that 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 we're not seeing something go away completely. So if it doesn't go away completely, what is it that is what is that is next? Right. We don't know. Or let's say. Many of us who have not been trained to see or or educated to see something different don't know what it is. But at the same time, we know that there's something there.
0: You know, it's interesting. I think many people have had the experience of of a person they've loved who has passed away maybe in another state. And they've not been told that this person has passed away. But all of a sudden they have a very visual experience of the person in their presence coming to say goodbye.
1: Oh, let me share you some this is a tr- this is a, another one. I mean I have many stories of sure you do rebirth <laughs> that are like that but um, this actually happened about uh, eight weeks ago because my my mother-in-law passed away on the second of November. and my wife was there. and when we heard that she wasn't very well, this was in the middle of October, Melanie decided that she was going to actually go back and be with her mother. And uh, the day that she flew, um our daughter uh called me and she said you know this is really strange but i got an email today and the email was from our our nephew ruben who had died three years ago oh. now i mean you know you know how people like yeah. you know snag email addresses and you get you, know, you get garbage emails all the time when people's emails have been snagged so we thought initially that this was just one of those unusual events that had happened on the day my wife happened to be leaving to see the grandmother of this boy, Reuben. Okay, but what was really strange about it was that when when um, my mother-in-law died, my daughter said to me, "You know, the strangest thing about it was that there was no like URL or anything like that in terms of going to something garbage." All there was in the subject line was the word nine. And my mother-in-law died nine days after my wife left.
0: Hmm. Interesting. I mean, you know, I think for, there are people in our listening audience who have had very unusual things happen to them, like something you just described. And oftentimes there's a fear of telling anybody because you'll be ridiculed. And, and so what I've always said to people is, then don't. <laughs> you, know? you don't and, have to get an explanation or a justification from anybody for these wonderful, you know, provings of universality of all.
1: I think what was really interesting for us, you know, so was, was after, um, after our daughter died, I had a chance to talk with one of the chief researchers for uh, sudden infant death in the United States. Her name is Carrie Sheehan. And Carrie was saying, you know, after all the investigation we've done into SIDS, we've looked into all sorts of factors, whether the child was on their stomach, on their back, whether the parents were vegetarian, blah, 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 mm-hmm. uh, whether they had PVC mattress. The only thing we could find in common with all of these people, all the parents of children that died of SIDS, was that the parents had premonitions that their child was going to die.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That was the only thing they found in common. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Larry Dawsey wrote about that. Mm-hmm. And the parents didn't talk about it. No. They didn't and want when to talk they did,
0: when they did talk to doctors, Larry Dawsey wrote about this in his books um, what a tragedy it is that parents who have these hunches are often denigrated by the medical profession. Oh, absolutely. And if they'd only paid attention to the intuition of these loving parents, some of these children would have been alive.
1: Maybe, maybe not.
0: Right. You know, well, like, you're right. And, and how do we know? You know, in, in the Hasidic tradition, they say when a very young child dies, they came to teach the parents. Yes. And that that's yes. their purpose. And the other teaching in Hasidim is that when we die, the day of our death, is when all the good we've done to the world illuminates the world again. And that's why people often say when a great person dies or a person who has done so much good, that people feel their presence all over the world.
1: Well, I think what was amazing for us, Zohara, was that, that in fact... The Lama that was with us at the time our daughter died has gone on to teach over a hundred thousand people how to consciously die mm. worldwide.
0: How beautiful!
1: So, so my my daughter's my daughter's death was what launched him into doing that for hundreds of thousands of people.
0: How beautiful! Well, Shamara Philippa has given you a great legacy, and her teaching and her life and her soul lives on in your family. A wonderful yes. family of the three children.
1: We have three children.
0: Right. How beautiful. Well, I want to thank you, Robert, for taking what was a very personal story and turning it into a very beautiful Buddhist teaching that can help anybody of any faith or of non-faith in really approaching what this beautiful experience is for every human.
1: It's been a real honor to be with you, Zohar, again. I I really love how you present things, and uh, I I love interacting with you like this. So thank you so much for allowing me into your space.
0: Well, we all share it anyway. That's what I like to say to everybody. So when you sleep tonight, I'll be there. That's right. (laughs) God bless everybody. We'll see you next week. 21st Century Radio is produced by Hieronymus and Company. Our executive producer and research assistant is Laura Courtner, And I'm Dr. Zohara Hieronymus. And remember, we do need more love in the world.